God, what we want when we gather is nothing more than for you to speak. What we want is nothing more, Lord, than ears to hear and hearts, Lord, to be moved. We want your spirit to have room to work in our lives. What we want is not just the words of men, not even the encouragements of brothers and sisters, not even the good feeling of singing. But Lord, what we want is a genuine presence with you as we sing back to you your praises. A genuine fellowship in Christ and in the gospel as we speak words of encouragement to brothers and sisters and pray over them. A genuine sense of unity that only your spirit can accomplish as we um, celebrate the body and blood spilled for us. And Lord, a renewed sense of understanding and perspective as you speak your word. Lord, I beg in spite of me, would you do that this morning? For my sake and for all of our sakes, would you be pleased to come and uh, use this time? Holy Spirit, have your room here, and we will give it to you to that end. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I am, uh, I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I do not know what tomorrow holds or how quickly and deeply our world may be changed. But I know that the ways of the Lord in his holiness and his mercy are timeless. I know that his character and his work are timeless. I know that for every one of us here in this room this morning, if we could rewind 24 months and be asked some questions about things like the end of civilization as we know it, our answers would be incredibly different than they are today because our world has changed deeply and our world has changed quickly and I don't think it's done. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I'm just not asleep. I didn't pick Zephaniah because I felt as though that's the message we need to hear, per se. I had a very, very rough idea of it. In fact, I didn't even know and still don't fully know where all the Lord might take us as I get down into the details. But I know we need the word of God. I know we need him to reveal himself in the authority that proclaims sovereignly over what's going on in any society in any day. In any day, I am God and I am the one with whom you must deal and everything is about me. And that hasn't changed. Because of the ways of the Lord in holiness and mercy, his character and his work, they're timeless. So we come this morning to one of the minor prophets. We regularly do this as we've spent some time, a uh, significant amount of time, uh, in two New Testament books over previous months, most recently, so that we can sit under the whole counsel of God. We go back and forth and we mix it up and we change up genres. And so I need no other reason than, um, hey, it's time to do a minor prophet, number one, and number two, hey, it's the word of God. So uh, I think you'll agree. Zephaniah takes place during the reign of Josiah, king of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel has 
long since been conquered by Assyria and exiled. This message probably takes place of this book, probably in the 620s BC. So it's right at one century since the exile of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now only the southern kingdom, having been miraculously spared from the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, has now a century later gotten in its degradation to the point where it is fully due the same judgment and exile. Zephaniah's message comes in a day where a nation has largely spurned the Lord and the kings of the previous 60 years, Manasseh and Ammon, have deeply led the nation astray. Josiah then comes on the scene in 640 BC, a boy king in 640. And there will be during his tenure a profound and yet sadly brief revival that will take place in his day, Josiah's, and return to the Lord. It's somewhere in that time frame, and again, probably in the 620s that Zephaniah preaches. We know that in some way, Zephaniah was used of the Lord to be a part of that mini revival. And his words come with great urgency. I know that this may be a part of scripture that we may tend to avoid, in part because when we do try and go and read it, it's hard to understand. And it's even harder to figure out how to hear it, how to apply it. But careful attention will more than reap the rewards of letting the Spirit of God speak. Because this cloud of deepest darkness we find within this book, with its certainty of imminent judgment, will the, which the generation to whom Zephaniah speaks will experience at the hands of Babylon, that cloud of deepest darkness will be dissipated by the breaking rays of a further future brightness whose light will sing the sweet song of the coming of the reign of the Savior. Zephaniah, let's read our passage for today, starting in chapter 1 through the very beginning of chapter 2. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, and those who have turned back from following the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate and a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become a plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. Near 
is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Thus is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. First, there is in our passage this morning the note of an invitation. It's an invitation that carries throughout the book, and it's especially highlighted at the end of our passage, but it's present there, though veiled, even at the first part, even at the beginning. And I would articulate it this way. Have you sought me? The Lord comes to his people. The prophets come to a people who, who know the Lord and yet clearly don't know their Lord. And he comes to them, these who have the priesthood and the sacrifices and the temple and the very presence of God and the way to walk close to him. And he comes and he says, have you sought me? I didn't ask if you went to church. I, I, I didn't ask if you, if you brought your lamb. I asked if you've sought me. And in light of the fact that they, hasn't, that they haven't, the Lord is one who makes a clean sweep. Notice in our opening portion that it has been time enough. Verse 2, I will completely remove all things, he says. And down at the end of verse 3, I will cut off from the face of the earth. The Lord is determined at this point. Why? Well, in large part, just because there are people who knew better, who were taught, who were his people, a redeemed people through the exodus, who were given a way to walk with their holy and glorious and beautiful king, given a law that the word says is, is the envy of the nations, given a relationship with their God where they don't have to guess at what sacrifices my deity might be looking for to be appeased. No, he who redeemed them has called them and brought them near. But there are people who have taken him for granted. And then Manasseh, whose reign was, what's the math? Four and a half decades, I think, from the 690s to the 640s, almost 50 years. And then Ammon, who only lasted a couple of years, which is a very good thing, were well known for their apostasy. Over five decades of decadence in the nation of Israel. And so um, it's time. Three observations about the judgment from this opening portion I want you to notice. First, simply put, the judgment is terrible. The judgment to come is terrible. That's really the burden of the words we have in verses 2 and 3. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. 
I want you to listen to these words and these images and see if they remind you of anything else you've heard of before in Scripture. Anything else that the recipients in the time of Zephaniah may have heard of before that time. So hint, it's got to be before Zephaniah. Three, I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the face of the earth. Well, what do you get if you take away all the beasts and all the birds and all the sky and all the water and all human beings? Where are you left? There's only one chapter in the whole Bible, right, that you're left with. This is the awful judgment that God says he is prepared to do. I will wipe clean the face of the earth if necessary. You know what? It is not hard for God, and let us be humble to understand this in our soul. It is not hard for God to hit delete and start over. He's done it before with water. Promise not to do it that way ever again, but it'll come again, as Second Peter tells us it will. Not with water this time, just with fire. And there are many sweepings down through the course of history, not only those at the, near the beginning and the end. The nation of Judah is going to go through one of those in a few decades after these words from Zephaniah, sadly. Jerusalem will have another one a few centuries later in A.D. 70 when the temple is destroyed and the Romans come in. And with a heavy hand, they crush these religious people. A terrible judgment when the Lord says, I will undo creation in my curse. This, uh, this is a metaphor for what he's going to do in 586 B.C. through Babylon, but only slightly. But it's a reality. The complete removal of all wickedness, which requires the removal of all who are wicked, which requires the removal of all mankind, which he will do one day. Second Peter, Revelation, and elsewhere. For this generation, and what we should understand of the prophecies of Zephaniah throughout, it's not a singular fulfillment, it's a multiple fulfillment. There is a near and imminent and decreed judgment which they cannot escape at best they might postpone it for a little bit in fact that may have been what happened through Josiah's reforms that it took 40 or 50 years I don't know only God knows the time but beyond that Zephaniah continually sees a final and a future and a full judgment and then beyond that a final full and a future redemption so he's going to give this generation a, a hope of redemption within their lifetimes after their judgment. And he's going to give all mankind the hope of redemption on the other side of his final judgments through Christ, right? Uh, that right there is the bare bones of what we do with the book of Zephaniah. And we'll work out the details as we go through piece by piece. Well, three observations about the judgment. First of all, it's awful. It's terrible. Secondly, the judgment is deserved. The judgment itself is terrible, but what led to the judgment is also terrible, four and five. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. 
and the names of the idolatrous, idolatrous priests along with the priests, and those who bow down on the housetops to the hosts of heaven, worshiping the stars in the sky, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom. There are three ways that the nation of Israel at this time has replaced Yahweh, the one true God, and they are there in verses 4 and 5. They are Baal, the hosts of heaven, and Milcom, or otherwise known as Molech. Baal is associated in the ancient Near East with the fertility cults. This is primarily the kind of idolatry that is sexual, or at least that's how you went about good Baal worship. It was very common to the land where the Israelites came. In seeing, by the way, these three replacements of God that the Israelites did, I think you can begin to see some of the tracks that we would run on in making some application to ourselves. And we see ourselves because the Israelites committed idolatry and adultery. They committed apostasy. Oh, you know, with just the common run-of-the-mill sins of the culture that they came into when they came into the land. And sexual sins were some of the biggest and best known. Not only that, but the nature of Baal worship, he being the god of all fertility and the god of all success and the god of all agricultural benefit, the the thing that a worshiper of Baal was pursuing was a, a promise of prosperity and wealth and a good life. And the beautiful thing about worshiping Baal is honestly, he makes very few moral demands. He's an easy God to live with for the most part. Baal worship is one of the ways that they sought a God besides the one true God. Do you think we have any similar struggles in our culture today, in our lives, our homes, or our churches today, whether just seeking God's gifts without him, whether a kind of worship that has no real teeth to it or moral demands, or whether just wholeheartedly embracing the worship of sex that the culture offers to us as though that idol could give life. Second, the hosts of heaven some discussion amongst the commentators, but most likely that this is really a Babylonian idolatry that the people have taken on. Oh, there was some there in ancient Palestine or the ancient Near East before the Israelites got there. But it's best known through the Babylonian worship. So I would uh, count these as sort of the newer gods on the block. These are the imported gods. This is the latest technology when it comes to apostasy. This is the latest in the development of finding a God to meet all of your needs. read an article this last week of uh, how the entire internet is basically pornographic. Uh, and the point made was simply this. The nature of pornography operates on the promise to immediately satisfy your needs. Guess what the internet does? Not just pornography, but everything that the internet does. Hey, Google, can you tell me who in 1927, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I better have an immediate answer, or there is something cosmically wrong with the universe. <laughs> Through the manipulation of current technologies, yes, I'm substituting that for the new gods. 
They could own their destiny. They could manipulate their future. They could bring order to the chaos of their worlds. No temptation for us today with our tools, right? Modern man doesn't worship at the altar of the promise of order that technology makes. Host of heaven, third, Moloch. Ah, Moloch. Arguably the most depraved and tragic of any of the worships. But I mean, how do you compare terrible to terrible? For those who were sufficiently radical and those who were sufficiently progressive, the worship of Molech required total devotion to an ideology that so often included even the sacrifice of one's own children. A phrase often in scripture, he made his son to pass through the fire. Yes, that's to take a little baby boy and put him into the hands of a burning hot metal statue stoked to the point where the metal itself is glowing. You place the child on there and let him go up in flames. For those who are totally devoted to the ideology, they will sacrifice even their children. We're not seeing that anywhere today. What altars are we sacrificing our children on? What ideologies are we sacrificing our own families and children on today? In our culture, there's nothing new under the sun. And for those who were sufficiently radical and progressive to say this is the way it's got to be done, well, through their unswerving commitment to a suicidal ideology, it offered them the assurance of blessing and a new tomorrow. Molech. Hebrew for the king, they would worship. Second Kings 21, by the way, during the reign of Manasseh, in verses 3 to 6, in rapid-fire fashion, it mentions all three of these worships. Baal, host of heaven, Molech. Guys, the judgments of Zephaniah don't come out of the blue, as though the people had no idea. Oh, really, Lord? I didn't know that we had turned our backs on you? Really? Well, that dude who was in charge for five decades, you were really happy about everything he sold you. And Ammon, thankfully I got rid of him a lot quicker, the Lord says. Judgment is deserved. Don't worry, this first section is going to take the longest of all of the three, so you will get to go home at some point today. <laughs> Third observation about the judgment. It's terrible, it's deserved, and finally it's needed. I know that deserved and needed overlap, but... Slight difference. Judgment is needed. Look at verses 5 and 6. And those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, and those who have turned back from following the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. What I want you to notice is there are four kinds of people, really, that are mentioned here in this passage. Those who bow down on the housetops to the hosts of heaven. These are just your false worshipers, Israelites, who have instead decided, I like these gods better. So they have apostatized. They have turned back. They have said, I've got something better than the God of the Bible that I worship, and they knowingly give their lives to it. First group, and that's why judgment's needed. Secondly, we have the mixed worshipers in the middle of verse 5, those who bow down and 
swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom or Moloch. Ah, these are the believers in Yahweh. Of course we believe. We, we believe in Yahweh. I go up three times a year as a good male Israelite to the festivals. I make my pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We observe all of the sacrifices and fasts and everything that the law commands. But just in case, we also kind of worship Moloch on the side. You know, just kind of hedging our bets. We just want to make sure we have all our bases covered. In case the Yahweh thing doesn't go too well, that's fine. Because we didn't put all of our money into that stock in case it crashes. You can decide for yourself which is worse, the first group or the second. But man, are we not prone to worship at other altars. Lord, help us, right? How many ways I hedge my bets? How many ways I just cover my bases? Yeah, Lord, I am so, I totally believe you, Lord. I'm totally trusting you. But, but just in case, I'm also going to trust in these other things. Just in case, you know, it doesn't work out like I kind of want. Third group, it's those who have stopped following the Lord. They once did, but they are, now they're not all together. Verse six, those who have turned back from following the Lord. Somewhere along the way, they've just gotten too distracted. They used to be those who sought the Lord, but not anymore. They just don't see the point. You know what? I used to be religious. I'm not religious. It's just not practical. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of things I could do on Sunday morning. I, you know, and I, I, I go to church and they talk about Jesus and stuff. But man, during the course of the week, I have to make decisions and I have to work hard and I have to do things. And it just that stuff doesn't really help what I've got to do the rest of the week. So what's the point? So they've just stopped. Or finally, fourth group, those who never have, those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Now, I want to be fair to what I think is going on here in what is sort of a Hebrew poetry kind of section. These groups are much more overlapping. I've tried to make it clean and simple, and pardon me for being a 21st century American analytic. Um, but I see the four groups in there is all I'm trying to say. I think there's more overlap than that. And this last group is uh, those who say, you know, my life is just so full. I don't need God. I've never sought God. Things are working out okay. I mean, sure, I have troubles, but everybody has troubles. So much else for me to do, right? The judgment that Zephaniah is announcing for the nation, it's not only deserved, it's needed. God has got to do something, right? I mean, it's no wonder then that God in his goodness cries out, enough <laughs> against such evil, against such captivating lies, against such blatant treason, against his goodness. By the way, who's leading the charge in this apostasy? Zephaniah told us it's the pastors in the churches. End of verse 4. And the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And so there are entire churches today leading the charge and pastors today away from the Lord. God help us, right? Have mercy. This is what prophets do. They point us back to those foundations and they call us to question our religion in the very best ways. Friend, what are you seeking this morning? 
Would it be obvious by someone just looking at your life and taking stock of where you spend your time and your money, what you worry over, what you rejoice over, what you laugh at, what you cry at? If you saw my life, would it demonstrate that I'm seeking the Lord? That's the question that Zephaniah puts before us, and it is so needed because the idols are so prevalent all around us. The Lord says, there will be a desecration of my land, a desecration of my people, and a desecration of the earth. But there will be a consecration of my people. I want you to notice the hint that's just a hint in verse 6, but it's going to grow into a shout by the end of the book. The Lord in verses 4 and 5 has addressed the public sins, and those problems. But notice where his heart lies in verse 6. Can you hear the plea of the God who bought this generation, who bought these people? And he says, those who turned back from following the Lord, those who have not sought me or inquired of me. You say, well, Frank, that sounds nice, and I I love the uh, emotion in your voice. But I think you're reading into the passage. I say, no, I'm not. Just wait till we get to the end of the passage this morning. Second, Zephaniah tells his generation, and the Lord would speak to us, that only awed silence befits the day of the Lord. Only awed silence befits the day of the Lord. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has, he has consecrated his guests. The pronouncement of that day, the pronouncement of the coming of the day of the Lord is meant to bring awed silence. The day of the Lord is a rich idea in scripture, and we have to understand it has multiple uses. It is a many-faceted gem. Many of those facets are negative, and many are also very positive. The day of the Lord is used in Scripture to, to speak of the judgment on Egypt by God using Babylon. It's, it's meant to speak of the judgment on Babylon uh, by God through the Medes. And it's meant to speak of the judgment on Israel through Assyria and here on Judah through Babylon. The point is the day of the Lord always includes God coming and revealing himself as divine warrior, either for judgment and justice or for mercy and redemption. It's used both positively and negatively, and it will be both, the ultimate day of the Lord. Let me read to you from the Hebrew uh, in verse 7. Are you ready? Hush. That's how verse 7 starts. Hush. Be silent. In light of the fact that the day of the Lord comes. So this generation has heard many references to the day of the Lord before. And there will be others after. And Zephaniah says, hush. Because the day of the Lord will come upon you. Only an awed silence befits that day. It's a hush not just because of the judgment. It's a, it's a hush because of the one, because of the sovereign Lord himself who will be revealing himself in unusual ways. 
Are we too busy for such silence? No worries, for he will have his silence. Verse 11, Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. I'm not sure if he's, call, if he's saying the other people that live in Israel who are the Canaanites that are left. I'm more inclined to think that Zephaniah just called Israel a bad name. Hey, you inhabitants of Canaan will be silenced. The Lord will have his silence. And the irony is thick throughout this passage. What else do we see in 7? The day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. What a, what a thick irony that we have here. The, the preparing of a sacrifice, the consecrating of guests, this is what you do when you're going to take uh, a sizable um, offering up to the Lord, a peace offering, and most of that beast comes back to you. And so what do you do? You throw a party with it. The peace offering is you celebrate in the presence of God with all of your friends. But, but what we have here is we have preparation. We have consecration. We have almost, as it were, a sense of expectation because of the excitement of the day. And the irony is, all the preparation is there, but it's a different day. Because these are a people who have despised the sacrifices of the Lord. Oh yeah, I went, I, I went up to Temple last week, and then Tuesday we're heading over to do a little gig for Molech with some friends. Having despised the sacrifice of the Lord, the Lord says, that's fine. I'll just make you the sacrifice. That's what verse 7 is. I have prepared my sacrifice, and I have consecrated my guests. And the host of heaven will look on as I bring judgment, and you will be the sacrificial lamb, he says. In no uncertain terms, the Lord wants to get the attention of the people of the time, and Zephaniah for us would say, hush and hear this irony. You who want a different Service, so the Lord will give you a different service. Hmm. Now comes the keynote of our passage, speaking of the day of the Lord. Uh, I would guess Zephaniah, only three chapters long, may use the phrase day of the Lord more than any other book in the entire Old Testament. And most of the uses of the phrase day of the Lord appear in our next section. What we find, starting in verse 14, is that we cannot avoid wrath by any ransom that we can offer. We cannot avoid wrath by any ransom that we can offer. 14. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Where is this day going to fall? Well, he names the places it's going to fall. And so just rewind with me quick, quickly. Notice he's mentioned in verse 4, the religious leaders, the idolatrous priests. 
And then notice he mentions the civic leaders in verse 8. I will punish the, pris- the princes, the king's sons. He goes on in 8 and he says, all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. Uh, these are the people who, uh, they like to virtue signal. They, they like to wear the cool clothes and show who they're with. Show where they shop and show that they don't shop at all the places that you're not supposed to shop at anymore because those people aren't good enough anymore. You can decide which uh, cancel culture, uh, what, which places have been the targets of cancel culture yourself, and you can make your applications, right? Not difficult. Uh, in context here, probably the foreign garments even include those who would wear garments that are indicative religiously of their religious commitments because it's here in this context of worship and sacrifice and those kinds of things. So if you wear the right garments, everybody knows that you worship the hosts of heaven. And if you wear the right garments, everybody knows you're woke or what you believe or where you stand. Just a note, by the way, I don't think the right answer to that is for us to wear the cool garments that are like the religiously acceptable ones. The point is, it's not about the garments. But Zephaniah is saying, God knows what's folded up in your drawers. (laughs) He knows your wardrobe. And he knows who you're trying to be. So we've got the religious leaders. We've got the civic leaders. We've got the the virtue signalers. Verse 9, those who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. There is, even in Zephaniah, a call to a justice for those who have acted unrighteously, who turn religious things into an oppression of the poor. Zephaniah doesn't do anything with that. It's an offhand one note, so I won't do anything more than that. But that's common amongst the prophets to go back and ask the Lord's heart towards the poor and the oppressed. By the way, that is not a woke idea. That is a God idea. So there you go. And I want you to notice who he singles out in verse 12. I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. You know what the word stagnant means? There's a whole Hebrew phrase there. It's those who have settled on their lees. Okay, thanks for explaining that. I had no idea what that was either. That's a picture common in that day of uh, what you do for fermenting wine. And uh, you'd set the casket, and from time to time as it ferments, you've got to turn it. Otherwise, all the sediment goes to the bottom and becomes dregs, and things don't ferment appropriately what he says is y'all have sat too long in your complacency and you haven't been turned and you're becoming like a wine that will be spoiled you're meant to be a sweet and rich drink that is pleasing to God but instead you've protected yourself you've you've made this world comfortable and guess what I'm about to take you down and turn you over, he says. Sound a little bit like the last couple of years? Take heart, brother, a sister, that God does not let us settle. Man, take heart that he keeps us in places beyond our resources where we call out to him. They lived without a worry, but all they've built will be abandoned. The The image at the end of verse 13 is they'll build houses but not inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards but not drink their wine. They're empty houses one day because they're empty lives today. 
So the Lord appeals to you and he appeals to me. How is your life today? Is it empty of me? Is it devoid of me? Or is there fervency and light? Is there heat and warmth in your relationship with me? They're well-dressed, busy with acquisition, and spiritually complacent. And in their complacency toward God, they assume he thinks the same of them. The Lord will not do good or evil. Things will just continue as they always have. Question, does your faith show in your business, in your schoolwork, or if you're a student? Does it show in how you use your money? Who owns it? Is it you or are you the steward? I heard there's a cool class that's coming up. Who do you spend your time with? And for what purposes? Friends, these are the questions of my life to go to the Lord with. I want you to notice the cacophony of noises. And don't worry, I'm going to come back to 14 through 18. But notice verse 10. There will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate. There will be a wail from the second quarter. There will be a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. That's the business district, I believe, by the way, as he targets each and every one of them. We are meant to envision a day of screaming and crying out and tears and crashing. And then he says, but I'll bring it all to silence. So the question is, in light of that, does that give you pause to say, you know what? Or maybe I've just been a little too comfortable. <laughs> so now he gets on to this great day of the Lord. And he says, in it, the warrior cries out bitterly. There in verse 14. Ever heard a grown man cry? Ever heard a battle-hardened warrior wail in agony? The Lord says, the strongest among you will be crying out and asking for mercy. The strongest among you will be brought to their knees. And then he gives a, an echo of it in 17 with a slightly different emphasis. I'll bring distress on men so that they'll walk like the blind. The second image is not of just the strong man crying out, but of men walking around dumbfounded and blind in their distress and oppression. There will be the absence of direction. There will be the sense of throwing up our palms to the sky and saying, I don't know what to do. There will be a gnawing distress. Men will grope for light because they have spurned the light. That's what he says in 17. Because they've sinned against the Lord, their blood will be poured out like dust. Precious blood, which the law requires very careful handling, even in the sacrifice of an animal. He says it'll be like dust. And their flesh will be like dung. It'll be like the pellets from an animal. Their very innards. What a day is this day. Trouble and distress, darkness and gloom. We have learned, haven't we, in our day how quickly 
the world can change. And it is not a time for complacency, this generation, is it, friends? Not at all. Am I the one who gathers to hear Zephaniah, who comes to the prophet, who comes to the word of the Lord and then walks away as though a man who looked at himself in a mirror and yet forgets what he looked like? Or is there any urgency spiritually in my life? Do I go back to my complacency? Brother or sister, how will you be moved? If there's one thing I think Zephaniah would require of us, what this passage and what the Spirit would call of us, is just simply to ask, Lord, how, how can my prayers be different this week? Maybe I should have some. How should my heart be moved? Maybe what I pray for just needs to totally change. I don't know, but you can ask the Lord and he can reveal to you. I want you to notice he closes out the great and terrible day of the Lord with these words in verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. Well, good. It's terrible, but at least I can't avoid it, right? I mean, this is the stamp on it. Scripture is meant to drive you into a corner where you go, you have nowhere to go. Chapter 2, verse 1 is one of the worst chapter divisions in all of Scripture. Every commentator I read is in agreement. The entire passage flows through the beginning of chapter 2. And thank you, Jesus, that I'm not going to say, okay, let's pray and go home right now. Be miserable all week. You can't avoid it. See you next Sunday. So now that he has our attention, there comes a third command. Hush, listen, now gather and seek me. He's going to say, for those who will, find the refuge of one safe place. For those who will, find the refuge of one safe place. Gather yourselves together, yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. The day has become certain for this generation in the 620s. This is not Jeremiah's preaching where he warns of a coming day. But if the people will repent, God will relent. By the 620s, it's a done deal. God has made the decision. Judgment will fall, and they will be exiled from the land. By the grace of God, some in this generation may not have to live to see it because a mini revival will take place through Josiah and through Zephaniah by the grace of God. And it cannot be avoided but we can pass through it if necessary if we need him for he is the refuge. Once you notice how he addresses the nation again, the irony of the prophets is thick. O nation without shame. You know what? They used to be a people who were God's special possession. 
They were his delight. And now they are ashamed of him. Have you ever had the urge in your heart, maybe at work, maybe with some old friends you haven't seen for years, some topic comes up, maybe it's religious, and you think, you know what, I don't agree, I don't agree with what they're saying, but I don't want to say anything because they're going to know I'm a Christian. That's a little embarrassing. Those temptations come, don't they? These are a people embarrassed of their God. And boy, it's going to get harder in our generation because we already are branded and people have already decided what they think of what it means to be a Christian. They haven't given us a fair hearing and nor will we expect to get it. A nation without shame. We are a people in our country who I think have forgotten how to blush, haven't we? I don't, I don't know there's anything that we blush at anymore, do we? So here's the call to this unavoidable judgment that is coming before, 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 Zephaniah says, before it happens, gather yourselves together and seek the Lord. There are three seekings that he commands. And if you're going to pray over this this week, you might want to write these down as bullet points. First, it's a personal. Seek the Lord. That's the first words of verse 3. Individually, in your own heart, just get alone with him. And say, Lord, I, I have no idea what tomorrow will, will, will bring. I have no idea what judgments may come. And maybe things will continue to get better and, and, and I'll live out the rest of my days and Jesus won't return for a few more centuries. My children will see their grandchildren. I don't know. But seek the Lord, for we are due a judgment. And I am due, personally, a judgment. But there's a gracious God who, for the sake of the salvation of many, is patient in waiting to bring it. Seek the Lord personally. And second, there is a, a calling out for spiritual help. In the middle of verse 3, it says, seek righteousness. Now, I'm, I'm a good uh, 21st century Westerner, so when I see righteousness in Bible, the first place my brain goes is to the Reformation and to forensic righteousness and to the judicial declaration that we can be made right before God because of what Christ has done on the cross. Amen? I hope you all say amen because that's the gospel. Okay, that's the first place I go. But then I have to realize, but I'm not reading a 21st century post-Reformation author, nor is his audience in that vein. As a prophet, I don't think that any of that's not true. I need spiritual help for righteousness that only comes from God. But I think in the context of Zephaniah, he's talking about a horizontal righteousness because that's what the prophets were also concerned about. And I need spiritual help for that because I use my money the wrong ways and I don't hang out with people I should hang out with and I do hang out with people I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't say that because I don't want people to be afraid to hang out with sinners and tax collectors. Okay, fair enough. So I'll leave it at that point is, there are things I do in the course of my week that are more about me than being in submission to the Lord, right? We sinners and tax collectors need spiritual help for righteousness horizontally, and it only comes from him. 
It's not a self-righteousness. So seek the Lord for that. And I think if you desire to pray along these lines, you can take that bullet point, and I am just sure that between you and the Holy Spirit, you'll figure out lots of things to ask his spiritual help for you to live in his righteousness this week in your horizontal relationships. And then thirdly, for our attitude, the third command is seek humility. In the middle of verse 3, Lord Jesus being our great example what is the result of that? For that generation, judgment is coming. You can't buy your way out of it. There's nothing you can give to ransom yourself from the wrath to come. But gather together and seek and seek and seek. And how does Zephaniah finish this passage at the end of verse 3? Perhaps. Perhaps you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. There are righteous people in every generation who will go through some of the worst and most terrible judgments of God because that just happens to be God's providence for when they live. It doesn't mean that God's forgotten them one bit. There always has been and there always will be. Praise God for a righteous remnant whom he calls and whom he makes. You've got to see one last thing in this passage. What does he say perhaps the Lord may do Perhaps he will hide you. Would you be surprised to find out the meaning of the name of the prophet Zephaniah? That it means hidden in Yahweh. So when he gets to 2, 3, he who said in chapter 1, verse 6, a people who have not sought me. And he gets to 2, 3, and he says, seek and seek, and seek, and perhaps you too can be hidden in the Lord. The story is told by Dr. J. Edwin Hardill, a pastor in Minnesota for many years. He visited a farmer who was a part of his congregation after the farmer had experienced a great tragedy, fire, had raced through his fields and his barns and had destroyed everything in his home. Everything had burned down. The hay had been gathered and it was too wet. And those who know how that works, wait, wet makes fire? You know how it works. Fire began spontaneously. It broke out and it could not be contained. The farmer's spirit was broken. Ron Allen tells the story this way. Together, farmer and pastor walked out to the remains of the barn. Most of the smoking timbers had been pulled clear of the cement foundation. As they walked along, the farmer saw a smoking thing, a husk, lying before him in the dust. Oh no, he grimaced. Even the barn hen is dead. And in his anger and frustration, he went up and he gave the smoking hulk a swift kick with his boot. No sooner had he kicked the dead head than he and the pastor were startled to, three, to see three little chicks running around in a circle where the hen had been. That hen, in a demonstration of love for her chicks, had literally roasted to death to keep them alive. The ancients knew well how hens cared for their young. They knew what it was for chicks to run for refuge to seek the comforting wings of their mother. They also knew what it was to come to the sheltering care of God 
and to know him as the wings of refuge hidden in Yahweh. Stand with me in this place. Gracious and mighty God, you are God of holiness and you will come in terrible judgment one day. We can stand here and say that and though we tremble, we are not entirely undone because the only place to hide from the wrath of Yahweh is to hide in Yahweh. And you, Lord Jesus Christ, have come to give us a refuge. You who are our refuge. Thank you that we have even a fuller glimpse of your propitiation, of your death, your sacrifice for us and for our sin. Lord, I ask this week, just encourage us through these stirring words of Zephaniah that we not be complacent, that we not play games, but we seek your face. And Lord God, make us your people. Hide us in your son. And this week, would you make us rejoice even as you sing over us those beautiful words, Zephaniah, we'll get to eventually. Let us experience that this week. We praise you for it and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.